Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, it's Olivia Rosenman here, and I just wanted to let you know that to celebrate the Sydney Writers' Festival and all of the great minds that we have in town this weekend, we are releasing four special episodes in conversation with festival guests. You can find them all on your podcast player. Enjoy. Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Jessica Smalley and this week we're in conversation with the Indonesian journalist Desi Anwar, who is in Sydney for the Sydney Writers' Festival. Desi Anwar is a columnist, senior anchor, journalist and the host of Insight with Desi Anwar on CNN Indonesia. She started her television career as a reporter, anchor and producer with Indonesia's first commercial television channel and pioneered the country's leading primetime news program, Seputar Indonesia. Desi has also hosted her own show, Face to Face, with Desi Anwar, giving her the opportunity to interview international figures. She is the author of several books featuring her writing, photography and philosophical musings in both English and Indonesian, including Being Indonesian, Life, Strife and the Pursuit of Democracy and Faces and Places, a collection of essays on travel. Welcome to Sydney, Desi. Thank you, Jessica. One of the events you'll be speaking at the Sydney Writers' Festival will be Spiritual Encounters. It's a free event being held on Saturday. So without giving too much away, what's the best spiritual encounter you've had as a journalist? Was it interviewing the Dalai Lama or Buddhist Richard Gere? Well, there's actually quite a few. I mean, uh, my... Being a journalist as a profession, you encounter many different types of people. And for some reason, in uh, during my career, I've ended up interviewing and meeting a variety of uh, spiritual people, people with, uh, and also going to uh, spiritual places. For example, I was there when John Paul, uh, the Pope John Paul passed away back in the early 2000 and I visited places like you know Mecca I've done some mini Hajj and that's part of my journey but at the same time I've interviewed many uh, spiritual or even what we say uh, people who want to impart spirituality like the Dalai Lama and I mean Richard Gere you might think that doesn't sound very spiritual but he does have a close connection with Buddhism and the Dalai Lama. I've also interviewed a a preacher who 
basically when he uh, preached. I've seen him you know, preach in front of thousands of people, and it's like one of those uh, preachers that can cure yeah, right. people, you know, the sick. And the, so people would come, and some of them in their wheelchairs and in hospital beds and trying to get his blessing and also to get cured by this man. So it was quite... It's quite a, quite an experience. Not only are you bilingual, but you also write and present the news in both English and Bahasa Indonesian. Does this unique way of reporting in two languages change your journalism in any kind of way? Well, it's uh, in the beginning it was a bit of a linguistic challenge because my... Being having lived in England for so long, and the way that my uh, how I view the world, the world, for example, uh, the way how we relate to the world and the things around us, language plays a, a very big part of it, and language also shape uh, the way we express ourselves. And and you're absolutely right because you know times. Uh, because uh, cause I also learn French, for example. That if you start speaking French, there's a French way of looking at things, and then you know you're speaking English. There's sort of an English way of looking at things. But if you're speaking in Indonesian, there is an Indonesian way of looking at things, and it's made much more complex because the Bahasa Indonesia that is spoken on a daily basis it's very different to the Indonesian that is. Um, in the newspapers, for example, and, in the, and on television, it's much more formal, much more... Uh, it has a sort of a distance to it that is quite, uh, in the beginning, I found quite difficult to relate to. Because most... Of the, Bahasa Indonesia itself is it's created to unite Indonesia when it became a country and it's a uh, most of Indonesians whether ja- if you're in Java West Java you your mother tongue is West Javanese which is Sundanese which is not Indonesian it's a completely different language if you're in Sumatra then you have all the different uh, languages and the dialects so the Bahasa Indonesia itself it's not a natural language to most Indonesians and the Indonesian that is spoken on a daily basis is not the Indonesian that you get when listening to television or reading in newspapers. In the beginning it was very, for me, it was quite quite confusing and I remember I was reading the news in Bahasa for, I had the two-hour morning program one and a half hours it was in Bahasa, Indonesia, where I was, of course, speaking in Indonesian. And then after the break, I had to anchor an English language news that I produced, which is called Indonesia Today. And then my tongue was, and I had literally you know, only three minutes to, <laughs> my tongue just got all twisted and it, it, was quite, it was quite hard in the beginning. But now it comes much more naturally. Mm. I think it gets better with practice and as you get as you use it more what do you mean by uh, that bahasa journalism indonesian is the approach to journalism is distant what do you mean by that 
Yes. Um, so the different registers when it comes to uh, the Indonesian language, there's the everyday uh, Indonesian that, in the, that people use, and it differs. You know, I guess when you're, for example, when you're young and you speak English, you speak a lot in, you know, you use a lot of slang words, you use a lot of you know, expressions, and you have made up words, for example. So it's the same in, in Indonesia. You, the young people, they basically have their own language. Sometimes you listen to them and think, what are they talking about? You know, and they come up with this sort of language, which is a, a lot of it is just uh, something that they make up. But then when you move in formal situations, then you actually have words that are not the words that you use on an everyday basis. So that, that makes it a sort of, there's an awkwardness that you have to overcome and you have to start speaking properly, grammatically with your prefixes and suffixes. And it's quite difficult to explain because the English word is there's only one word for me and that's I and there's one word for you and that's you. But in Bahasa, you can say a variety of things. But when you're actually talking formally, there is a formal way of addressing um, other people. Now, and during the new order period when Indonesia was under authoritarian government, they would use Bahasa, they would use language as a political tool to explain situations. For example, instead of saying the, you know, Indonesia is a poor country, you say things like Indonesia is a developing country. Or if you say, oh, the price of um, bread has gone up again, then you, you, you say something like, oh, the price of bread is adjusted. So there's, in, there's a lot of effort to make the language much, uh, it, it doesn't really reflect the true reality. Right. So in that sense, it can be quite manipulative. And you see this actually in, you know, when politicians speak, you know, it's, you don't call a spade a spade, but you call it, uh, you know, in you know, macroeconomic indicators or whatever. And it doesn't actually give you a sense of what is going on. <laughs> so the formal Indonesian is like that. There is a distance instead of saying I'm hungry or, you know, I'm or that person is short, you know, you say Things like, oh, that person is vertically challenged. You know how I, I think Americans use that a lot. They don't actually say something uh, clearly, but they use words to, in order to be politically correct. Mm. And I think that's also one of the reasons why um, we see what's going on in, with Brexit and with uh, Trump winning the U.S. election is the, the way that things are communicated and it has not really convinced anybody so that now you have this backlash against being politically correct 
you know, there's a there's a period when being politically correct is important. Now it's if you're not politically correct, you know, if or if you're politically correct, then you're not credible, then you're not really telling the truth, then you're not trustworthy. So this is what uh, what um, we're facing at the moment is basically a crisis in language and communication, including us here in the media, people now listen to us and they said, well, no, we don't believe what you're saying because it's all gobbledygooks, you know. <laughs> we get that in Australia as well when people said, ah, yeah, those, those are just words, they don't mean anything. Or, yeah. A whole big sentence that could have been put down to one word sort of thing. Yes, that's why people like Trump won. That's why people like, you know, Nigel Farage in England, you know, because they, they, they're just basically dare to say you know whatever it is that people have not dared to say and they feel that that's that's being truthful which of course is it doesn't you know Mm. it doesn't mean that it just often it just means that you're rude but (laughs) you're listening to call the state on 2SER I'm joined by Indonesian journalist Desi Anwar he was here in Sydney speaking at several events at the Sydney Writers Festival now in in 1999 you left a role in television journalism for an online publication Mm astaga.com was that a bit of a risk at the time taking an opportunity in the digital space well, yes and no, because if you remember 1999, that was sort of the, the time of the, what you call the dot-com bubble. Mm. I had been on, in television by then for, for nine years. So I was quite happy to be out of, uh, out of the, that industry. And... Then you know, somebody came up and said, hey, we want to set this up. And I thought, well, why not? Because I have always been interested in the potentials and the possibilities of what the Internet can do. I remember when the Internet was first introduced back in you know, 1994, I actually went to an Internet uh, seminar. And it was something that was... Thinking about it, now looking back, it was really the time of the dinosaur, you know, when <laughs> when you have to actually plug in your modem to a telephone, and oh, then, <laughs> and so I thought, you know, this is this is an opportunity to actually start a, a new platform, and I could see the potential, and there was only one at that time in Indonesia. Uh, it's called detik.com. It's an online publication, but it was basically just a page with news updated every so often. And what I created with this young guy from America was a first portal. So with all, you know the search engine, and then you can sort of click chat, and you can go to this page, and it takes you to series of articles on lifestyle and then it has news on economic issues and so it basically it has it has everything and but then after six months i was asked to help found a new television station metro which is indonesia's first news channel 
and by then also the dot-com bubble you know the investors sort of freaked out because the, they were losing money or something and so he got sold and that, that was my my first and last forays into <laughs> the dot-com business now sitting here in comfortable sydney it's difficult for us to see how australia could possibly be perceived as a bad neighbor However, over the recent years, with the execution of Australian drug traffickers, territorial breaches of Indonesian waters by the Australian Navy and spying revelations, Australia's relationship with Indonesia has been tense. How is Australia perceived by an Indonesian media? Well, you know, as long as I've been in the media, the... The relationship between Indonesia and Australia has has its ups and downs, and I think the it's a bit like you know a, a marriage <laughs> because we're so close in terms of proximity, so there's bound to be friction. But on the other hand, Indonesian the Indonesian people they go to Australia a lot. Uh, they send their children to Australia to be educated. And and I know there are lots of Australians that go to Bali, for example. So I think there are different levels of uh, the relationship between the two countries. But what I have found, as I remember under, for example, for the Prime Minister Paul Keating, there was a lot more Indonesianist in Australia, people, you know, scholars who understand and who learn about Indonesia. And as time went by, I think there's sort of less and less interest from the Australian side to learn more about Indonesia, to learn the Indonesian language and to learn about the culture and to understand. So I, I think, you know, it, it it depends on the how the government also set the course, and I think it's not. You know, the, us in the media, we just see the policymakers. You know how they react, and of course, there are things that uh, Indonesian governments do that we ourselves don't approve of you know for example um things like the the capital the, the execution of um you know the capital punishment and the death penalty and so on that's a, there's quite a big discussion here on that issue but on the other hand you know there's certain things that the indonesian government maybe felt that especially when it came to the East Timor referendum and that sort of left a, quite a bit of a bitter taste in a, between the two countries. And, but it's, it's a cycle. I mean, I, at the end of the day, when it comes to sort of people-to-people relationship, uh, at least here in Indonesia, we always look at Australia and, you know, it's, it's a great place to go on holiday. It's a great place to go and send your children uh, to be educated. So, it, it, you know, these things uh, change depending on 
wh which direction that the country and the government wants to take the country to, so to speak. So, but uh, but in the last, I think a couple of your governments, there's been sort of more of Australia being part of looking more towards the Atlantic, you know, whether it's Europe or being sort of part of the, the US, the Western community, whereas actually Australia, it's in the Pacific, you know, we're, we're across the pond from each other. And I think this is also something that we have to understand at the end of the day. We are neighbors and we are linked uh, and we need each other. So it's not in anybody's interest for us not to get on. That's what I think anyway. You're listening to Four for State on 2SER. I'm joined by Indonesian journalist Desi Anwar. He was here in Sydney speaking at several events at the Sydney Writers Festival. In the US, CNN is under attack in the US from their president, Donald Trump. Now, you're quite separate in CNN Indonesia, but have Donald Trump's tirades had any effect on the news agency internationally? Well, you know, Donald Trump is probably viewed more kindly outside of the US than in the US, although uh, he's... He's a bit of a, you know, he's a bit of a maverick. He's a bit of a figure that uh, we sort of quite uh, we laugh at. But I remember when some of our parliamentarians went to uh, the state and actually met with Donald Trump during his campaigning and had a selfie taken with with him. And you know, we in the media just completely, you know. He was, they were very proud of meeting Donald Trump and we're just like, you know, what are you doing and why are you joining, you know, in Donald Trump's campaign? So to go back to the CNN in International itself has been described by Trump as, you know, fake news. <laughs> Fortunately, CNN Indonesia in terms of the editorial content, we are completely autonomous. The uh, What we put on air and how we choose our stories, it has nothing to do with CNN International. We can have access, for example, to their news if we want to use it and to their uh, journalists or correspondents. But as an entity, in CNN Indonesia is a, an Indonesian news company. So we're not beholden and we don't dance to their tune, uh, so to speak. And if anything, we're seeing as in Indonesia, because some of the media, particularly on television, now seem as taking part in, you know, taking sides in politics. So we try to maintain our independence. We try to maintain our objectivity and not be tied to any uh, political party and not endorsing any particular um, candidate, for example. And just finally, what aspect of Indonesian life and culture do you find most difficult to communicate to the Western world? I think that we have so many great stories to tell in Indonesia and so many like I said, 
we are a country with over 250 million people with incredible islands, and, and it's not just Bali. We have 17,000 of them and many, many uh, beautiful uh, beaches and places that people can visit. But you know, Indonesia has always been described as sort of a sleeping giant, and there, there hasn't been sort of that much focus on the country, and I think it's partly due to the fact that we're not very good at marketing ourselves. For example, when people talk about, oh, going to Asia, they talk about going to Malaysia and to the Philippines, for example. But Indonesia is actually so much bigger and has more varieties of things uh, in terms of not just the culture, but the food and uh, the places uh, to visit. But I think we do have a problem in speaking up for ourselves, drumming our chest a little bit, um, marketing uh, who we are, and putting ourselves out there in the world. And I mean, more and more young Indonesians, because of the their ability to use the social media, for example, are uh, getting you know, much more confident when it comes to doing things and being you know, recognized for what they do. But I think language is also part of the, the problem. For in, in Malaysia or in Singapore and the Philippines or India, the English, because of our colonial history, English is very much a part of their language and that's also I think part of the the problem because English is such a universal language and if you cannot really communicate uh, properly then it's quite difficult for and there's not that many English language publication coming out about Indonesia on Indonesia by Indonesians themselves and I think I'm one of the few that are actually quite comfortable writing in English. But unless you can actually, you know, and their efforts to translate some of the Indonesian literature, for example, but unless there is that effort to put ourselves out there, it's quite difficult to make people notice us, except for the bad things like, you know, the bombs and terrorism, which is not something that you want to be known for. But... Uh, there's just so much more that we have to offer, and it's our it's our homework. It's our it's our job to make sure that that we do that, and and let's hope it you know at some point it works. And to be honest, I think it's also the Western world's homework as well. Well, think? I mean, I know you know the people who come and visit Indonesia or who, expats who come and live here after how many years? Well, they just don't want to leave <laughs> because. It's life is it's easy. I mean, it, in terms of the weather, the food, and you can you can have all the you know all the nice things in life here in in Indonesia. I mean, you, we have so many beautiful beaches, and we have such a rich culture, so many different traditions, so many things to do and and to look at. And it's it, we're not just Bali. Mm. A lot of people just don't, you know, they know Bali. They think Indonesia is part of Bali. But no, Bali is only one of the many 
any thousand islands that we have. Uh, that is all we have time for this week on Fourth Estate. Desi, thank you so much for joining us over FaceTime today. We look thank you. Yes. My pleasure. We look forward to hearing you at the Sydney Writers Festival. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us get to know what you like and what you don't and helps other people to find the show. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter and let us know what you'd like us to cover. My name's Jessica Smalley. You can catch us at the same time next week.